Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I hope you've had a great week. In this episode, we're going to talk about rest periods and rest days. In their latest position stand on resistance training, the American College of Sports Medicine recommends two to three minutes of rest between sets for core exercises using heavier loads, which they define as those exercises included specifically to improve maximal strength, such as the squat and the bench press. They go on to recommend one to two minutes of rest between assistance exercises. Now, on its face, these recommendations don't actually seem that bad. However, in the section preceding these recommendations, the authors say that strength recovery may not be complete within three minutes of rest and that lifting performance may be compromised with one versus three-minute rest periods. Then, in the summary of the paper, the authors recommend one to two-minute rest periods for hypertrophy training and three to five minutes of rest for strength and power training. Though it doesn't seem exactly clear what the ACSM is recommending, though they do make a case that rest period length is important. Let's take a look at what the science has to say on rest periods in resistance training. To start, the purpose of a rest period is to dissipate fatigue that accumulates during the set that was just performed. Now, fatigue represents the subjective experience of a number of exercise-induced changes in the individual, such as muscular soreness, muscle damage, tiredness, etc., that can all lead to reduced force production. A number of objective proxies to this experience are available, though they tend not to be very useful when it comes to program design or assessing rest period lengths. For example, creatine kinase is released from the muscle cells when they break down during exercise. While blood creatine kinase levels can be measured to gauge how much muscle breakdown has occurred, this metric does not reliably correlate to performance or ratings of fatigue. There's also likely to be some controversy in this definition of fatigue, as others define muscle fatigue as purely a decrease in force production that can be measured by a strength test. In this view, muscle fatigue represents the performance difference between before and after the intervention and is divided into central and peripheral components. I'll talk about my view of muscle fatigue later, but for completeness, Peripheral fatigue is produced by changes at or downstream from the neuromuscular junction. That's where the nerve meets the muscle. The signal gets to the muscle to contract. That's still preserved, but the contraction produces less force than it did beforehand. Things like muscle damage, accumulation of metabolic byproducts like lactate, hydrogen ions, and depletion of energy sources would all fall into this category. On the other end, central fatigue stems from changes upstream to the neuromuscular junction, so the brain, the spinal cord, and the nerve supplying the muscle itself. This type of fatigue results in a smaller than normal electrical signal being sent to the muscle, thereby causing the muscle to produce less force. A number of neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine are involved. This is one of the potential mechanisms by which methylphenidate, the active drug in Ritalin or Concerta, can actually increase physical performance. 
Other mechanisms include some of the metabolic byproducts discussed before, like inorganic phosphate and hydrogen ions, as well as mechanical tension itself. Stimulating group 3 and 4 afferent nerves can all inhibit muscle contraction signaling. Mechanistically, energy availability and the removal of metabolic byproducts are the factors that have gotten the most attention in the research as causes of muscular fatigue. From an energy standpoint, the two biggest players here are thought to be adenosine triphosphate, which is ATP, and phosphocreatine. Energy for human activity is derived from the breakdown of ATP into its constituent components, which is ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and inorganic phosphate. Skeletal muscles then transform this chemical energy into mechanical energy via muscle contraction. While this is all true, the decrease in ATP levels during resistance training is usually small or statistically insignificant. Multiple studies have shown this, suggesting that ATP is being almost entirely regenerated during exercise, and we probably don't need to rest a lot in order to, quote, replenish ATP stores. Because of the relatively quick regeneration that's happening during exercise itself, the final capping off of ATP stores to 100% is estimated to be about three to five minutes after strenuous exercise, but again, they just don't really go down that much during the actual set itself. I'm pretty sure I used to think the purpose of rest periods was to replenish ATP stores. I'm sure I've said that before. But based on research over the years, it seems like the more causal molecule is phosphocreatine, or PCR. Now, PCR levels are way higher in muscle than ATP levels are. And further, the enzyme that actually breaks down PCR, which is creatine kinase, is way more efficient at breaking it down than the splitting of ATP. Now, PCR levels in the muscle also plummet during a hard set or anaerobic effort, with some studies showing up to an 80% drop during a single short effort of less than 45 seconds, where it takes about eight minutes to fully replenish PCR levels in the muscle. Now, this time period is important, the 45 seconds, as the other contributor to muscle energy during lifting is the breakdown of muscle glycogen or glycogenolysis. Yeah, it's going on the whole time too, and from a fatigue standpoint, it's making lactate and hydrogen ions, making the muscle a little more acidic as it goes along, which impairs calcium release within the muscle and impairs contraction. As it's doing all of this, oh yeah, it's also depleting muscle glycogen. The problem with the lactate, glycogen, or hydrogen ion explanation of muscle fatigue is that glycogenolysis takes a while for it to really get going, about 45 seconds to peak output. For sets that take a long time, so ones with high reps or drop sets, extended tempo work, and so on, yeah, this is probably a factor, but what about fatigue from short sets? Right now, it's not really clear that there's a single mechanism. Current evidence suggests that the decrease in phosphocreatine levels along with an increase in acidity from hydrogen ions are the two major mechanisms of action. As the set goes along, glycogen depletion, additional acidity, activation of group 3 and 4 afferent nerves, and so on all likely contribute to what we know as fatigue. All of this is to say, there's a lot of factors involved in the experience of fatigue, but it's hard to associate specific factors with a particular type, central or peripheral. We just know that it happens as the demands of the task become greater and greater. So things like more weight, more sets, more muscle being used, more perceived threat, and as sets go closer to failure. This brings us back to my view on fatigue. I don't think that fatigue and change in muscle force production are analogous terms. For example, we'll later discuss a study where people squatted a one rep max for over 30 days in a row and afterwards their 1RM increased from baseline. Certainly, there was at least some fatigue on board with the subjects, but their strength, a measure of muscle force production, actually improved. Or consider the times that you've taken a few weeks off from the gym and you come back to find you're not nearly as strong as you were before. All this despite having lower levels of muscle fatigue, right? There are a number of examples like this that make the case for fatigue being different than just a decrease in force production or performance. And that's why I think it's more appropriate to define fatigue as the subjective experience of a number of exercise-induced changes 
in the individual, such as muscular soreness, muscle damage, tiredness, et cetera, that can lead to reduced force production, but don't always do that. This is a slightly different definition, which allows for performance changes independent of fatigue levels. Performance is therefore related to not only the amount of fitness adaptations on board, but also the fatigue being experienced, the environment in which this is all taking place, and a number of other factors. Okay, enough about fatigue, let's get back to rest periods. I said at the outset that the point of a rest period is to manage the fatigue that accumulates, regardless of whether it's central or peripheral. Let's expand on that a bit. The point of a rest period is to allow the trainee to train with enough intensity, that's weight on the bar, enough volume, reps and sets, and exertion level to generate the adaptations that they want. This is going to be an important theme throughout the rest of the podcast. If rest periods are shortened too much, results suffer because people aren't able to do enough. And if rest periods are lengthened too much, results may also suffer because people aren't able to do enough due to time constraints. This optimization problem is covered nicely in the data on cluster sets versus rest redistribution. Now, cluster sets are when there's some sort of rest period within the set between reps compared to a traditional set that has no real rest between reps, only between sets. It's thought that the between rep rest decreases muscle fatigue, allowing for greater maintenance of phosphocreatine and clearance of metabolic byproducts, thereby enhancing performance of the lifter. Consider a person who's benching a set of eight at 78% of their one rep max. With traditional rest periods, they'll do a set of eight and rest three minutes or so before the next one. With a cluster set, they do, say, five reps and rest 45 seconds, do two reps, rest another 15 seconds, and then do a final rep for a grand total of eight reps. Then they'd rest before their next set. If they rested more than two minutes, the total time spent on the set and the subsequent rest period has gone up significantly, which often happens with cluster sets and kind of muddies the waters. If a person takes rest between reps and still takes the same amount of rest between sets they'd otherwise be taking without cluster sets, their workout can take a lot longer. On the other hand, if they take rest between reps and then cut down their rest period between sets to match, that's called rest redistribution, a specific type of cluster set where total rest periods are kept the same as their traditional set. All right, so what does the data say when we compare rest redistribution to traditional sets? A recent meta-analysis of 27 studies comparing 416 adults, mostly dudes, with one year of training or more, showed that when using rest redistribution, the weights being lifted had higher velocities, less velocity loss during the set, generated less lactate, and were rated at lower RPEs. When the rest periods between sets were extended, so cluster sets with the same amount of rest between sets as the traditional set, the RPE and velocity loss tended to be even less. The effects were rather modest overall, but the biggest differences seemed to be when the traditional sets were being taken to failure, whereas the cluster sets with and without rest redistribution were subsequently not taken to failure. This probably explains the findings from more recent studies suggesting that when traditional sets are not performed near or to muscular failure, the effects of alternative set structures on absolute measures of mechanical performance are not as profound. The first takeaway here is that more rest can allow people to lift the same volume with less fatigue. Additionally, with emerging data showing that greater loss in velocities during a set tend to produce worse outcomes compared to a modest loss, the thought would be to rest long enough between sets to maintain exertion level to keep bar speed from dropping too much and RPE from climbing too high. The second takeaway is that adding more total rest time can increase the duration of a training session, perhaps affecting adherence and the amount of volume that can be done. We know that training volume is very important to training outcomes like strength, size, and cardiorespiratory fitness, so we can't rest for too long either. Unfortunately, the meta-analysis didn't compare strength or size outcomes between cluster sets, 
rest redistribution, and traditional sets, so we don't know which one worked better for what we really care about. How much rest do we need to optimize training performance, training outcomes, and time spent training? For that, we're going to need to dig into some more data. For strength, a 2017 meta-analysis looked at 23 studies that all lasted at least four weeks and tested strength before and after the training intervention in 491 subjects. The subjects were mostly young dudes, half the studies were in trained individuals, and half in untrained. In the trained studies, longer rest intervals tended to maximize improvements in strength. One of the included studies compared rest periods of 30 seconds, 90 seconds, and 180 seconds in 33 trained men to see how it affected their one rep max squat. All groups lifted four times per week for five weeks, alternating sessions of squats, push press, bench press, and some accessory work, with a second session of clean pulls, power snatches, and rows, each done for five sets of 10 at a 10 rep max load. The 180 second rest group increased their squat one rep max by 7% to just under 300 pounds, whereas the 30 second group increased their 1RM squat by only 2%. Interestingly, the 90-second rest group increased their squat by 6%, despite requiring half the rest time as the group who rested for 180 seconds. Another study in 36 men compared rest periods of 1, 3, or 5 minutes during a 16-week training program where they alternated upper and lower body days over four training sessions per week. On one session, they'd go heavy, somewhere in the 4 to 6 rep max range. In the other session, they'd go a bit lighter in the 8 to 10 rep max range. They tested their 1RM bench press and leg press of each group at the end. They did not all do the same volume as the reps completed were affected by the rest periods. For example, the 5-minute group did about 40% more volume than the 1-minute group, and 15% more than the group who rested 3 minutes. The results are somewhat predictable. For the leg press, the 1-minute rest group improved by 22%, whereas the 3-minute group improved their 1RM leg press by 34%, and the five-minute rest group improved their leg press 1RM for 42%. For the bench press, the one-minute rest group improved by 7%. The group resting three minutes improved their 1RM bench press by 13%, and the group resting five minutes increased their bench press by 11%. The results on the bench press were kind of surprising. You'd expect that the group resting five minutes would have done better than the group only resting three minutes, but overall, the relationship between resting only one minute or longer uh, seemed to be pretty clear. A few of the other studies reviewed in the meta-analysis compared even longer rest periods of four and five minutes to shorter ones of around two minutes to see if there were any differences. In general, the studies looking at longer rest periods showed that the individuals were able to lift heavier weights during the sets and do more reps as well, but, and you knew there was going to be a but, the five-minute rest period group couldn't do as much volume in the time allotted for training. At the end of six months in this particular study, there were no significant differences in strength or hypertrophy between the group resting five minutes versus two minutes. Another study corroborated this finding with subjects doing five sets of 10 reps at a 10 rep max load for bench press, flies, leg press, and leg extensions, taking one, three, or five minutes of rest. All of the subjects were dudes who could bench one and a half times their body weight, and this was a crossover study. So the same subject did the same workout three times on different days with different rest periods. While the subjects did more repetitions of bench press when resting three or five minutes between sets compared to only resting one minute, there was no significant difference between three and five minutes. Finally, two more recent studies looked at the volume and velocity loss with short versus long rest intervals. Compared with rest periods of less than two minutes, longer rest periods consistently resulted in greater training volumes on average. Similarly, compared to resting only one minute in between three heavy sets of five on the squat or the bench press, Resting three or five minutes resulted in greater bar speed and less velocity loss on sets two and three. 
Interestingly, there were no significant differences in velocity or velocity loss between resting three and five minutes. Taken together with the other data collected in the meta-analysis, it seems pretty clear that rest periods longer than two to three minutes are better for strength development in trained individuals. It's less clear if extending rest periods from three to five minutes or longer actually improves strength long-term, as long rest periods may compromise the ability to do enough volume in a workout. In untrained individuals, the rest interval doesn't seem to matter much based on the available data, but in untrained and trained individuals, shorter rest periods tend to make the sets a little bit closer to muscular failure, they tend to raise the RPE and the discomfort, which should be considered in programming. Overall, I think that strength gain is likely maximized with longer rest periods in the three to five minute range for compound exercises. As someone becomes more trained, they likely won't require as long of rest periods before they can do the next set, thereby allowing them to do more training in the same amount of time. Of course, this assumes that they're following a program that is not taking them really close to or near failure all the time, which is likely to remain very fatiguing and is probably not the best for strength gains anyway. I use two to three minutes rest periods for most of my training, extending that up to five minutes for my heaviest sets during competition prep. Longer rest periods of five minutes or greater may increase performance in the short term, but they can also limit the amount of training people can do in a session, ultimately limiting long-term development. If you're in the final stages of prepping for a meet or one rep max test, resting longer than five minutes may be beneficial, but since volume should be rather low at this point, it's probably not going to cause any issues with getting the training done either. Outside of that, I don't really see a need for extending the rest period. Rather, I'd modify the training program to allow a three to five minute rest period or shorter to ensure you're getting enough work done. Okay, that's the story for strength. After the break, we'll dive into the research on rest periods and hypertrophy. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature. Maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BarbellPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. 
cards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Hypertrophy is defined in most studies as an increase in total mass of a muscle, which is driven primarily by mechanical tension from lifting weights, which then drives muscle protein synthesis. Resistance training relies heavily on anaerobic pathways to create energy in the form of ATP, for the muscles to use, which results in the buildup of metabolic byproducts such as hydrogen ions, inorganic phosphate, lactate, and others. Research has continually shown that these metabolic byproducts are associated with muscle hypertrophy, though it's not clear that they're directly causal. You see, anytime that the muscles are contracting during resistance training, they're producing these metabolites, making it hard to determine whether metabolites contribute to hypertrophy or if it's just the mechanical force from muscle contractions causing the metabolites to appear. Based on present data, it appears that the majority of muscular hypertrophy is caused by mechanical signals, whereas metabolites may have an indirect role, if any at all. Nonetheless, it's been hypothesized that people focusing on gaining muscle size might do better with shorter rest periods in an effort to increase metabolic stress, thereby increasing the supposed anabolic signal to the muscle. Let's take a look at the research on this. In one study, 16 men did four sets of leg press and four sets of leg extensions at 75% of their one rep max to failure. One group rested a minute between sets, and the other group rested five minutes between sets. Biopsies of the leg were taken after the workout, which showed that muscle protein synthesis increased 152% in the group resting for five minutes between sets, whereas it only went up 76% in the group resting for one minute between sets. Another mechanistic study looked at men training with either two or five minutes of rest over six months to see if the shorter rest periods produced greater increases in lactate or hormones associated with muscle growth, like growth hormone, testosterone, and cortisol. This was a crossover study where each subject trained with two-minute rest periods for three months and then five-minute rest periods for the other three months. There were no differences in blood lactate, growth hormone, testosterone levels, or cortisol levels with the different rest periods. Both groups increased strength and hypertrophy, but there were no differences based on the rest periods. Okay, enough about mechanisms. Let's talk about hypertrophy outcomes. A 2016 study had 23 men trained three times a week for eight weeks where they did three sets of 8 to 12 reps for seven exercises per session, resting for either one or three minutes. At the end of eight weeks, the group resting three minutes had done more volume, lifted heavier weights, and had significantly more growth in their biceps, triceps, and quadriceps muscles. They also had double the improvement in their 1RM squat, up 15% compared to 7.5% in the one-minute rest group. Those resting three minutes improved their 1RM bench press by 12.7%, compared to only 4% in the one-minute rest group. Of note, the researchers tested their subjects' muscular endurance by having them do 50% of their 1RM bench and squat to failure. Those resting 3 minutes improved their performance by 10% more than those in the short 1-minute rest group. In a meta-analysis of six studies looking at the effect of rest period length on hypertrophy, mostly in untrained men lifting 4 times per week for 8 weeks or so, almost all of the results favored the longer rest period for driving more hypertrophy. Of note, the short rest periods were usually between 20 to 60 seconds, and the long rest periods were up to 4 minutes in length. Overall, I think the data on rest periods and hypertrophy highlight a similar relationship to what we saw in strength training, though the data is not quite as good, mainly because rest periods are probably one of the more under-researched areas in programming. Still, 
longer rest periods seem to do better for producing muscle gain, likely because people can do more volume and possibly because less fatigue is being generated. There's a point of diminishing returns though, where even longer rest periods, say five minutes or more, don't necessarily do better than something more modest like three minutes. And I think there's also likely an effect of exercise selection with exercises using heavier loads, more muscle mass, and so on, likely doing better with more rest than something like an isolation exercise. To that point, isolation exercises may do better with shorter rest periods of two to three minutes, but I still think that shorter rest periods may compromise the amount of volume people can do if they get much shorter than that. Again, the amount of rest that people need between sets to maintain the volume, the reps per set, and the exertion level, RPE or RIR, is likely trainable. As people get more and more fit, they may be able to decrease their rest periods a bit without much of an issue. Okay, home stretch here. The final thing I want to talk about is rest days. The current recommendation is to do resistance training with at least one day of rest in between training sessions. And this recommendation comes from a study in humans showing that a recovery period of 48 to 72 hours between sessions is needed to, quote, optimize the molecular response favorable to gains in muscle size and strength. In this study, nine untrained individuals were subjected to electrical stimulation of one of their quadricep muscles to elicit 30% of the maximal contraction for five seconds, followed by a 15-second rest, and this went on for about 30 minutes. So 30 minutes of zaps, okay? Muscle biopsies were taken at various times to assess insulin-like growth factor one, various markers of protein synthesis, satellite cell differentiation, and so on. Now, I read this paper a number of times, and for the life of me, I can't see how the authors arrived at the conclusion that 48 hours are needed to optimize molecular responses. Even if I'm just too dumb to understand this paper, I do question the validity of a study using electrical stimulation instead of actual exercise and only measuring various markers of protein synthesis instead of actual outcomes like strength and muscle size. If the idea here is to figure out how much rest people need to do between resistance training sessions, this paper does little to answer that question in my mind. Okay, so let's look at some more data to see if we can suss this out. One really interesting study looked at trained individuals squatting a one rep max for over 30 days in a row. There were only three individuals in the study, so not big, but interesting nonetheless. Two of them are powerlifters. One of them was a weightlifter with many years of training experience. On days one to 30, each subject did a one RM squat followed by five volume sets, either five sets of three at 85%, or five sets of two at 90% of their one rep max. They also benched or pressed two to three times per week, but they did not do any deadlifts. Okay, now it's time for results. Subject one increased their squat from 473 to 500 pounds in this 37-day study. Subject two increased their squat from 275 to 303 pounds. And subject three increased their squat one rep max from 484 to 530 pounds. Another study of five resistance trained men had them train arms for 21 days in a row. With one arm, the subjects did a 1RM biceps curl every day, and with the other arm, they did a 1RM biceps curl plus three back offsets, again, every day. In this study, the 1RM kept getting better for the biceps curl for about 12 days before it started to plateau. Ultimately, both groups improved their 1RM biceps curl after 21 days by about two kilos. The arm doing the additional back offsets also got bigger, whereas the one only doing the 1RM test every day did not. A final study took 30 recreationally active men and had them do the same three-day-a-week program of leg presses, lat pull-downs, leg curls, shoulder press, and leg extensions. One group trained three days in a row, and the other group trained on non-consecutive days. After 12 weeks, both groups got much stronger, adding an average of 50 kilos to their 10-rep max leg press. But there were no differences between groups. They also gained muscle mass, but again, there was no difference between groups. So much for rest days, am I right? 
For rest days, I think that the practical takeaway here is similar to what we discussed with rest periods in that both are useful for managing fatigue in order to allow the trainee to train with enough intensity, that's weight on the bar, do enough volume, reps and sets, and keep the exertion level within reason to generate the adaptations that they want. If there's not enough rest between sessions, which depends on the program and the individual, well, results may suffer because people aren't able to do enough. On the other hand, if there's too much rest between sessions, results may also suffer because people aren't able to do enough due to time constraints. This probably matters most for people who are doing very fatiguing training sessions. Programming concerns aside, if you're beat up and you're going into the next session and your strength, work capacity, and motivation to train are way down, that may limit results if it happens often enough. Once in a while probably doesn't matter, but if it's every day, that probably is a problem. On the other hand, a well-designed program where each session isn't too fatiguing probably doesn't need a lot of rest days. Training four or five days in a row isn't unheard of for me and some of our lifters, depending on programming and scheduling, for example. Ultimately, I think that for the vast majority of people who are training two to three days per week, rest days should be more of a function of a person's schedule and availability to train. If you have to train two or three days in a row, that's fine. If you want to take a rest day here and there, also fine. I'd prefer for people to be active on most days, so doing some conditioning to meet or exceed the current guidelines on days that you're not lifting weights, that would be fine too. Alternatively, if you need to split your sessions up over multiple days, thereby taking fewer rest days but having shorter workouts, that's also fine. For more trained lifters who are going to need more training volume, well, there's less room for rest days in general. But ultimately, there's still not a best schedule of training versus rest days, in my opinion. All right, that's it for this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.